Hello, hello. This is How I Crushed It. I'm Tunde, and this is the podcast which shines a light on talent within the community. Thanks for tuning in. My guest this week is Fumi Olotoye, a multimedia journalist who currently works at Good Morning Britain on ITV as a news features producer. At Good Morning Britain, she's part of a team which gets the nation talking about the most topical and fiery debates of the day. She previously worked at London Live as a video journalist reporting everything from being at crime scenes to presenting live at the Notting Hill Carnival. She's also worked at ITN News across the various regions. More recently, she's worked as a news producer for The Big Breakfast, which made a return on Channel 4 last year, I think it was, featuring Mo Gilligan and AJ Ududu. So... Looking forward to speaking to Fumi. And I've also heard that she is a big fan of EastEnders, which is a bit controversial because she works for ITV. So, Fumi, thank you so much for being a guest on How I Crushed It. You're very welcome. How are you today? Yeah, good, thanks. Really good. Uh, had a long day, but still on, still got the adrenaline in me to do this interview. <laughs> but yeah, all good. How about yourself? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I, I was just saying to Fumi that I was in a cab trying to get here uh, in time for the interview and I just about made it by about 10 minutes. So <laughs> uh, I'm, uh, I was a little bit stressed out, but as soon as I started talking to Fumi, she immediately calmed me down. So I'm, 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 all, I'm all good. Um, and, uh, obviously you work uh, in, in news. I mean, in terms of news, was it, a, was it a full on day or was it pretty, uh, is, is news a bit lean at the moment, would you say? Uh, you know what, there has been some stuff knocking around. Um, you know, there's the kind of news around, um, Greenwood, that player that was accused of, you know, quite serious crimes. His charges have been dropped uh there's news in terms of Piers Morgan has done an interview with Rishi Sunak the prime minister so you know there's gonna be lines coming out that there's a strike yesterday strike tomorrow so there's there's a lot of stuff hanging around at the moment to be honest it's quite busy yeah well we'll we'll get into some of the the the, the meaty stuff a bit later in terms of your your job because uh, I'm sure people will find that really fascinating uh and particularly your journey but the other thing I found out about you, and uh, some people may find this quite amusing, is that you you are or you were a big, big EastEnders fan. Is that, oh, is that still the case? Let me tell you, as we're doing this interview now, I have EastEnders on mute in the background. And I'm talking to you and also can have like one eye on it as well. I'm still a big EastEnders fan till this day. I even thought you were going to cancel the interview because I thought ah. she's such a big EastEnders fan. <laughs> no, well, thank God there's iPlayer now. If this was maybe 15, 20 years ago, I might have said to you, uh, can we do it at 9, 9.30? But yeah, no, it's iPlayer. So worst comes to worst, I can always catch up later. Well, um, you and my mum, big, big EastEnders fans. Oh, really? I only, I only catch it like maybe once a year at Christmas. So oh, I know. See, you guys are not serious. Yeah, You're not with us shooting in the gym, as they say. We're watching EastEnders <laughs> all year round, waiting for that EastEnders moment <laughs> as a Christmas moment. And we can feel the significance of it, you know, whereas you guys just dip in on Christmas Day and you're like, what's happening? No, you need to be with us all year round. <laughs> yeah. Lightweights, part-timers, what can we say? Yeah, can we exactly. Say? <laughs> well, you know, I'm almost finding the situation quite strange because you are such an experienced interviewer. You're, you're, you're normally interviewing people and I'm, I'm interviewing you now and I'm like, you know, <laughs> doing this little podcast and trying to interview you. I mean, how, 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 many, how many people do you think you've interviewed over the years? Oh, gosh. You know what? No one has ever asked me that before, but honestly... I couldn't even tell you. It, it would definitely be hundreds. It would definitely be hundreds. I don't know. Like, I, I honestly have no idea because even within a day, we may speak to like 10 people. So if we're saying 10 and then we're doing like, I can't even do the math, but 10 times five within a week. So let's say 50, 50 times 50. Whoever is good at math can work that out. But it's a lot. It'd be it'd be hundreds, honestly, possibly even thousands. I can't. I, I don't even know. I have no idea. 
Because if you can wow. imagine there's short interviews, but then there are longer interviews. And then there's ones where you have kind of like set up so that you can have like a sit down interview with cameras and all that kind of stuff. So there are various interviews throughout my career. I, I couldn't even tell you how many, but definitely it'd be hundreds, if not thousands. Well, yeah, 50 times 50. I think that's 2,500. So, Well, there you go. That's a lot of people. (laughs) And that's within a a year. Can you imagine? That's within a year. So, Well, I'll I'll, I'll try my best. (laughs) (laughs) I'll try my best. No pressure. No pressure. (laughs) I guess going back right to the beginning, I I know that you you were born in Nigeria. Um, What what part of Nigeria were you born? I was born in Lagos on the island. Yeah. On the island? Yeah, in a military hospital, because my dad used to be in the military. And then I understand that you came to the UK before the age of one, is that is that right? Yeah, yeah. I was a baby when I came over with my mum. Okay. And what, what led your mum to come over to the sunny shores of the UK? <laughs> so basically, um, she decided to come over just because, you know, there was a breakdown in her and my dad's relationship. And so um, the idea was that she would kind of come over here, clear her head for a bit, figure out what was next, et cetera, et cetera. Um, But then she just decided to stay, basically, and make a go of it. That was it, really. I see. So as far as you are aware, I mean, did you ever go back to live in Nigeria or or you always been here pretty much? No, I've always been here. Um, Although from the year 2006, when I first went back, um, I've pretty much been, if not every year, at least every other year. Um, I think it's very important to kind of recognise where you come from, your heritage, your culture. Um, and so I've stayed in touch with that as much as I could. Um, you know, I'm very proud to be British Nigerian. I hold the British side of me as much as I do the Nigerian and vice versa. So, um, yeah. I, I, go, I try to go back at least once a year if I can. It's more frequent these days, obviously, because the older you get, the more money you, you have and the more flexibility you have. And so I've been more recently. But, um, yeah, I really, I really like Nigeria. Yeah. Okay, so where, where did you grow up in? I'm guessing it was London, but what, what part of London? I grew up in Bexley, Bexley Borough. Oh, so that's in, is that Kent or...? So... The po- if you look at the postal kind of address, it will say Kent, but it's very much a London borough. You know, it's under the the jurisdiction of the Mayor of London. It's within the M25. Um, it's a London borough. All those things. So even though it says Kent within the address, it's very much still a London borough, but it's at the very edges. So it's like zone five, zone six, you know, that kind of thing. So I, gr- I grew up there and I kind of bounced around different towns within... Bexley Borough. So for a while I was in Bexley Village, then I was in Welling, then I was in Eris and, you know, some other places in between. But by and large, I, that's where I was. Okay. And as far as you can remember, was it was it a happy childhood? Was there any sort of challenges that you had to go through at that time? You know, that was a great childhood, you know. And you know what, the older I get, the more I'm like, damn, like people have been through it. I had a very, very happy childhood. Like, Obviously, my mum shielded me from a lot of things that she was personally dealing with as a single mum. But it never affected me because, as I said, she shielded me from so much. And so my day-to-day life was so happy. Like, and I didn't want for anything. And my mum really tried her best. You know, when I look back on it now, I think I don't even know how she did it. I don't know how she did it in terms of, you know, keeping the lights on and keeping a roof over our heads and all this kind of stuff. I don't know how she did it as a single parent, but... She she did. And I had a very happy childhood. I had my grandparents around me, I had my mum's younger sister around me, my mum obviously. So, you know, there were t- times when I was very young where it was, you know, that three generations within the house and there was lots of music and there was food and I went to good schools and and I'm just so, so lucky, so blessed. Because when I hear what other people have been through, I'm like, wow, I haven't even been through 1% of what other people have been through. And I realise now more than ever how lucky I was and how blessed I was to have such a good and happy childhood. And, you know, obviously that's the foundation of who I am today. It sounds like you were the only child, is that right? Yeah, I'm the only child of my mum. And then I have a half-brother, half-sister with my dad. The only couple of years separate us, though. 
So I know sometimes being the only child, because I've got, I've got one or two friends that have um, been the only child, it can sometimes have different pressures. You know, sometimes you're, because you're the only child, you know, the parents put all of their sort of desires on that one child and that can have a, a big impact on the, on the child. What impact did it have on you, do you think? I mean, I don't feel like I had any more pressure than, say, the average Nigerian child, you know. <laughs> you know, failing was not an option. But then yeah. I never saw that as a kind of pressure like, oh, I can't live up. I was like, no, because everyone is going through it. And actually, if I looked through my family, everybody was doing significantly well. So, you know, one of the things I used to say to myself, especially, you know, in my 20s, I used to tell myself, if I have the same genes as everyone else in this family, then there's no reason why I can't make a go, uh, make a go of it and make a success of it myself. I have the same genes as everybody on both sides of my family and everyone seems to be doing okay. So I never saw it as a kind of negative. If anything, I saw it as a, well, this is the platform I have to stand on. I'll be okay, you know? And so um, I, didn't, I, don't, I don't feel like I had any kind of extra pressure per se. But yes, failing was definitely not an option because everyone was doing well and everyone was like, successful academically as well as career-wise and also I just felt as though you know for example going to university it wasn't it never even entered my mind that there was a possibility of not going to uni for example because everybody in my family has gone to uni everybody a to z in fact I used to say to people that I feel like I'm, I might actually be the black sheep of my family on both sides because I'm the only one that doesn't have a master's everybody has a master's except me and it doesn't matter where they are in the US, in the UK, in Germany, Australia, New Zealand, whatever. I'm the only one that doesn't have a master's. Even the people younger than me that uh, younger me, younger than me, coming after me do. And so, in that respect, I think maybe you know, mid twenties, I was a bit like, oh, maybe should I go and do a master's? But I kept telling myself, I was like, no, that's a waste of money. I don't need it in this industry. I'll be okay. So, um, yeah, I mean, the pressure was. For me, I didn't, I didn't necessarily feel the pressure, if I'm really honest with you. I mean, don't get me wrong, there were times where you had like, for example, when I did my 11 plus, my God, yeah, there was pressure then because even for myself, it wasn't even necessarily from my mum or anyone else. It was myself. I wanted so badly to go to a particular school. And so I put pressure on myself to do that around, you know, 10, 11, 12. But um, I didn't feel it the way some people may think in terms of, oh, you're the only child and you know, African parents, all that kind of stuff. It was no different to anything that my family went through already or some of my contemporaries and other families. Yeah, I know I know full well that Nigerians, they love a degree. So uh, I know, <laughs> I'm fully aware of that, fully aware of that. that um, so you were always pretty academic, even at, even at primary school and then obviously going into secondary school. Um, you mentioned about your, um, I don't even remember, 11 plus actually. So, um so you, you went through that period and then did you actually get into that into that school that you wanted to go to or what, what happened then? I did. Yeah, I did. So I was so happy, if you can imagine, especially because when I had. So when you do the 11 plus, if I remember correctly, you had maths, English, nonverbal and verbal reasoning. Those are four main exams. And I remember for my I think it was nonverbal. I just I don't know what happened, but I ran out of time totally. And I realized that the examiner said something like five minutes left and I had like 40 questions left. Oh, no. I was like, what on earth am I going to do? So literally all I did time was... Management. Honestly, time management. Honestly, so that was the <laughs> biggest lesson I learned about time management, you know, at that age. Mm. And I remember just doing, because it was multiple choice. And so you, I just thought to myself, what am I going to do? I, I can't do anything. Just do A, B, C, D, D, C, B, A, A, B, C, D. Towards the, the final 40 questions, I came out and I cried my eyes out. And it was on my birthday as well. I was like, I failed, I'm not going to get in and blah, blah, blah. Then when I got my result, guess what? Of the four exams, that was the highest mark. Wow. So I was like, what on earth? When literally it was just like a guiding hand just guided me in those last 40 questions. But um, yeah, no, I got into the school and I was so happy. So happy. That was like such a relief. And I know that uh, around about <clears throat> the age of 14 or 15, in terms of your career, you um, had a kind of big discovery about what you wanted to do. Can, can you tell us exactly how that came about? You know, how did you decide that you wanted to become a, a journalist? X Factor, the show oh. X Factor. So I was watching it and um, 
it was the first series and I saw the presenter, the very first presenter before um, Dermot O'Leary, a lady called Kate Thornton. Oh yeah, I remember And I her. thought to myself, her job is so cool. She gets to talk to all these people, mingles with the singers, talks to Simon Cowell. I said, let me look this lady up. So at the time, I think it might have been before Google, Ask Jeeves or something. And I looked her up and I saw that she was a journalist and she was like an editor of Smash Hits magazine at just 23. You know, she was clearly very bright and very sharp. And I thought, what's a journalist? So I looked up more about journalism and I was like, well, actually, this seems a lot more interesting than just only being a presenter. And so I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do journalism. So that was it. That was in my mind from 15, really. But it was a battle, though, because obviously there were people in my family that weren't so keen on that. Yeah, I was just going to say, so did you tell your mum at that age that you wanted to become a, a journalist? What did she say? Um, I can't remember if I even said it out loud, but I just remember the real battle came when it came to uni in terms of, you know, the direction I was going to head after uni. So between the ages of, say, 15 and, you know, 18, I guess I chose my subjects accordingly. Um, you know, for example, doing humanity subjects, etc., and then eventually doing English in uni. But um, I don't think my mum ever really took me seriously in terms of going down the journalism route. I thought I think she just thought, OK, my daughter's more of a humanities person. I can stay here toward law. Um, but then, you know, it came to a head in uni. <laughs> well, I mean, before, before you got to uni, I, I, I understand that you went to a boarding school. How was that experience for you? Because, again, I know people that have gone to boarding school. I mean, I don't know if it was just like a just during the week and you were allowed to go home at the weekends. But I know some people have different experiences of being away from home. Uh, how, how was it for you? You know what? I look back now and boarding school really was the beginning of shaping my personality because I went for sixth form against my wishes because I really wanted to stay at my school that I got into for the 11 plus for my sixth form. I even went started two days there. But then somehow my mum convinced me to go to this boarding school for just a day. You know, in fact, in fact, what am I saying? The deputy head of the boarding school called me and was like, just come for a day and see how it is and all this kind of stuff. So I agreed. And then I just see my mum packing all my stuff. And I was like, mum, why are you packing so much? I'm only going for a day. <laughs> but then literally she packed my stuff, dropped me there. And then that was it. And I was crying my eyes out because at the time... I thought to myself, I'm leaving all my friends and the freedom I was thinking of in terms of being in sixth form in that former school wasn't going to happen anymore. If anything, I'm going to be under more lockdown, being in a boarding school. I had a boyfriend at the time. I didn't want to leave him and all this kind of stuff. So, you know, initially it was very difficult and I was, you know, very upset. But actually, as the days and weeks rolled on, I soon saw it for what it was. And it was a huge, massive opportunity because... You know, people always ask me what's the difference between a private school and a normal school or, you know, a boarding school. And the number one difference, I would say, isn't even necessarily oh, more academics. It's not that at all. If anything, it's more about the resource you have in becoming a rounded individual in terms of your access to extracurricular activities. So, for example, in my in my grammar school, it was very much like, get your A, get your A, make sure you get your A, your A star. And if you get a C, it's like, oh, you know, you might as well fail. That's how it, they made us feel. You know, it was all about the academic attainment, which is fine because, you know, you want to get good GCSEs and good A-levels and, and all that good stuff. But I found in my boarding school that um, there was more emphasis on the kind of what we had was the seventh period. So most schools, I think, have five or six periods, but we had a seventh period that would take us from 3.30 to 4.30, which would allow us to go and do something that was extracurricular. So it could be the debating society, the chess society, ride horses. Um, I'm trying to think, well, you know, learn another language, anything that you could do within that seventh period. And then there would be like a timetable of different things that you can attend, basically. Um, or you could just use that seventh period to study, you know, depending on, on on what you wanted to do. You had more freedom as a sixth former compared to people who were lower down than you. And so for me, I really used that time to just get to just explore and try different things, really. Um, I'll never forget the first time I went to the debating society. I was in awe. I was like, wow, these people are talking like they're in parliament. This is amazing. You know, I never experienced anything like that before. 
Um, and so for me, I just saw boarding school as an opportunity to kind of almost reinvent myself because when I was in my grammar school, I wasn't naughty and I wasn't bad, but I used to hang around with the slightly naughty crew. And, you know, you're always kind of guilty by association, even if you didn't do it. And so I found that when I went to this new school, I was like, right, I'm going to reinvent myself. I'm going to be the biggest goody two shoes. I'm going to be a complete and utter geek. And no one is going to know that I am had this kind of previous life as a semi-naughty girl, whatever. And so that's exactly what I did. I just reinvented myself and put my head down right into my box, really studied for my A-levels, really got involved with extracurricular activities like music and, you know, attending the debating society and all these different things. And um, yeah, it just really made me really, it really taught me a lot. And also being away from home, I guess that feeling that people get when they leave home at 18 to go to uni, I experienced that at 16. So by the time I got to uni, it was nothing, if that makes sense. So when people are feeling homesick, I'm like, why are you feeling homesick? But I always always had to remind myself that actually this is the first time people are being away from home ever, whereas I had already had that kind of two-year gap, you know. Was it quite close to your home or where was the school? It wasn't actually. It was in Hertfordshire. So it was about an hour's drive. And so, yeah, to answer your question, I was a full-time boarder. So, But what I used to do was, especially in the first year, because I was a bit homesick, I would go home every weekend. And my mum would be so angry because she's like, I paid for full time and you're coming home every weekend. I'm like, I don't care. Like, I have a boyfriend. I want to come and see him. I mean, I didn't tell her that. But in my mind, that was the main reason, you know. And so, um, but then when it came to second year where A-levels got really real, that's when I was like, yeah, I'm I'm just going to stay here. And when I'm done, I'm done. So I, I barely came home in second year. Well, it obviously had a, a positive impact because you got into uh, Birmingham. I mean, actually, do you think do you think you would have got into Birmingham regardless of whether you went to this boarding school? You, you said you said that you were quite academic anyway, but um, I was just wondering: do you think it would have had any impact on your grades? You know what i I definitely think it would have been more of a struggle, and I mean that in terms of not just academically, but also in terms of just being able to be focused because being away from home and in a, in a school that was literally in the middle of nowhere. I mean, when you looked out of the window, it was cows and sheep. So you were literally doing nothing apart from whatever the school had put on or you were studying basically. And so that level of focus I was able to get allowed me to study a lot more than I would have done if I, per chance I was at home with my friends and all that kind of stuff and dealing with my boyfriend and whatever. So there's that element. But also, you know, when I took English um, as a subject for A-levels, I really took that as almost like a default subject because I didn't necessarily even like English, even at GCSE. In fact, I really didn't enjoy it. However, I don't know what it was about my two teachers in boarding school, but they just brought that subject alive for me. Like, it was a complete and utter 180 transformation in the way that I approached that subject and how I enjoyed it, the text that we were studying. I think because they just, they gave us information um, and taught us in a way that wasn't just about how to pass the exam. It was also about just the context of what we were reading and why that was important at the time and what the relevance it has now. It just made us enjoy the subject so much more because it was taught in a more holistic fashion, if that makes sense to the point where I actually put it down (laughs) as a degree. So I think perhaps if I had stayed in my last school, I wouldn't have even considered English as an option. I would have maybe just gone and done something else completely. I I don't know. Like, I always knew I was going to do something, you know, humanities-based because I wanted to kind of follow what most journalists have done, which is do English, history, politics, or something along those lines. Um, But whether I would have gone into Birmingham and still got the same grades... It would have been a struggle. Honestly, it would have been. Yeah, some teachers just have that ability, that, that X factor. <laughs> yeah. Just referring back to the TV show, but not all of them, but some of them just have that ability to inspire an interest in a, in a particular subject that you maybe wouldn't have had if you had another teacher. So, Oh, honestly, honestly, it was like night and day. They're very rare. So obviously you got into uh, Birmingham University, I, I, I understand. And did you... Were you able to maybe get involved in the student paper or did you flex your journalistic skills at uni? 
I did, but quite late, I have to admit. And that was only because um, in my first year, I was elected ACS president, African Caribbean Society president. And so for the first year and a bit, I was kind of focused on that. Um, And then in my second year, I fell ill with a kind of mysterious illness. So to this day, I'm not even sure what it was. It was some sort of like flu or whatever, but it just took me out. Like I was in hospital and everything. And so I spent a lot of the second year just trying to play catch up with everything that I had missed and trying not to fall behind on my grades, et cetera. Um, And so it wasn't until the very end of second year slash third year that I started to get involved with the student newspaper. I'd write features here and there and I'd write, you know, the odd um, news story. And I even had one front page once and, you know, but it was very late, really, Um, so, yeah, but I think if I had my time again, I probably would have tried to involve myself in the journalism side of things, especially TV, a lot earlier. So I didn't even get involved in the TV side of the student union at all, which, you know, when I look back in hindsight, it's just crazy. So you graduate from Birmingham. I'm, I imagine you, you move back down to London to, to live with your mum. How was that sort of period where you're looking for your first paid job? So I know for a lot of graduates, it's it's really helter-skelter, isn't it? And yeah. uh, it, you can be looking for a decent job for quite a while. How was it for you? Yeah, so it was difficult because basically as soon as I had finished Birmingham, I went to journalism school, which lasted from September 2010 to uh, January 2011, which basically equipped me theory-wise everything I needed to do to kind of hit the ground running, running in any newsroom. So I was thinking, oh, you know, as soon as I finish that, I'll be great because it, it was an accredited journalism, you know, um, course as well so I was like yeah it'll be great as soon as I get out I'll get a job and you know Bob's your uncle but actually what transpired over the next you know almost two years was just endless internships and endless work experience and hundreds of rejection letters because you know at the time well twofold at the time one the country was knee deep in a recession so no one was hiring anyone especially you know work experience no one's got time for them (laughs) and then second of all you know coming from the background that I do I don't have like an uncle or an auntie or whatever that maybe works for the telegraph or maybe works for the spectator or in ITV or something like I just I had to make all my contacts from scratch myself and just network my bum off basically and so it was ages before I got my first paid gig it was a very long time Almost two years. Oh, wow. That is a long time. I was actually going to ask you, what, what's your view on the media industry? Because I used to work for a media, a media agency. And I know those companies, they rely heavily on interns. And you've just said that in your world, you were doing almost like two years of internships. What's your feeling about that? Because I, I do think at times it can, you know, it can take advantage of young graduates often or college leavers, and it's often unpaid. What's your feeling about it? Because you've, you've actually gone through it yourself. Yeah, no, I'm, I totally agree with you, to be honest, because, you know, the problem with doing things like internships that are unpaid is that you're only going to get the graduates or the people who can afford to do work unpaid. So I was very fortunate that my mum was able to kind of still believe in me, believe in my dream and be able to kind of sustain me with the small pocket money throughout that time, which in itself was humiliating because I can have been in my early 20s and still taking money from my mum but such was the time I didn't really have a choice you know and um in my mind I was like if I just do one more internship I'll get in if I just do one more internship I'll get in and so if you if you only have graduates that can afford such a thing you're going to cut yourself off from so many people that could enrich your newsroom or enrich your media company you know so you're kind of almost cutting your nose to spite your face when that happens I mean, I get it. You know, the media is very tight in terms of money. There isn't much, you know, cash flowing around, et cetera, to pay people to do content, which is, which I, in itself, I don't agree with. But, you know, at the same time, I just think if we're serious about diversifying our media companies and diversifying our newsrooms, you have to get people that come from all kinds of backgrounds. And that means people who can, yes, afford the internships, but also those who can't. So you have to pay you just have to, you have to pay, even if it's the absolute minimum wage, you have to pay something. And even if it's a thing where you say, look, I can only pay you for one day's internship, that one day will be enough for that graduate or, you know, work experience because that's one more 
day of work experience that they've had prior, if that makes sense. So, you know, something's better than nothing. But at the same time, yeah, I just don't think that kind of endless exploitation of just getting people to work for free because they're desperate for work experiences is not a good look, in my opinion. Yeah, I agree. So during this two years, I mean, was there particular highlights, uh, maybe one job during that two years that really stands out or was it all? The one that really, really, really helped me and set me up was when I was working uh, for the community channel, which was at the time owned by a charity called Media Trust. And basically they had put on a scheme where they wanted to kind of get 10 reporters to kind of be video journalists that will make up a new kind of London magazine show that will be aired on the channel um, every fortnight or so. And we would do kind of like features and like little films within the show about different things happening in London. But as part of that training, um, as part of being on that show story, we had lots of training. So we got trained on cameras. We got trained how to edit. We got trained how to write scripts. You know, these are things that I was so desperate to learn because I knew from the get-go that I always wanted to be in television journalism. So me doing all the magazine internships and the newspaper internships and the website internships, they were all just things I wanted to just do just so that I can make a beeline for TV one day, if that makes sense. So the fact that this internship came and taught me all these fabulous things and we had a, you know, an amazing mentor and that I still have today, a lady called Jasmine Dotiwala. Um, we just learned so much. And, you know, it's so funny because a lot of us from that cohort still are in touch today, but I'm having lunch with them this weekend. And, um, you know, as we've grown up through the industry, we've all supported each other in different ways, even though we've ended up in different corners of the industry. You know, some people have gone over to like crime and factual and documentaries about the LGBT community and this and that. And I've, I'm, I stayed in news, obviously. So, um, we just learned so much from not just the scheme itself, but also from each other. And we've supported each other ever since. And that scheme was, wow, uh, 12 years ago now. Wow, time flies. So you've gone through this period, you've been doing these internships. What happens next? How did you make that next step to your, in, in your career? Yeah, what was the big break for you? The big break was basically um, ITV had this traineeship um, that they advertise every year. And I had applied once during journalism school and I got through to the assessment centre and then um, I wasn't picked at the assessment centre. That was a crushing blow. I cried for weeks. And the second time I applied, I didn't even get to the assessment centre. And the third time I applied, I was told that I was on the waiting list. Um, and then they had called me to say, oh, the guy that was meant to come... There was a guy that was meant to come, but he's had to drop out because um, he had broken his leg or something. So can I come? But, it, you know, literally the assessment centres in like three days or something. And I was like, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I'll be there. Like thinking, oh my gosh, I have like absolutely no preparation, but, you know, effort. <laughs> let me just get there. So I got there um, and did the assessment centre. And what they do is from the minute you walk in, they are assessing you. Because basically the people that assess you are all the different heads of news of all the different ITV news regions. So Yorkshire, all the way up in Tyne Tees, like Newcastle, Wales, um, West Country, which would be like Cornwall, Devon, Somerset, all those kind of places. And, you know, just all the heads of news, all these different areas of the UK would come down to London to assess all these kind of new, you know, potential trainees. Um, and also they would get people from like the nationals as well. So from like ITN and also um, at the time, what was Daybreak, but is obviously now Good Morning Britain. And so they assess you through different things. They'll give you like a breaking news exercise. They'll give you a teamwork exercise, a writing exercise. And then you'll do like a three panel interview at the very end of the day. And so I was trying my best, you know, just, you know, milling through all the different things I had to do. And then the three-person panel now, and I looked at my panel, I was like, oh my gosh, I've got us. My panel is tough. I have the head of HR for ITV News. Wow. I had the news editor of Daybreak, which was basically would be the news editor of Good Morning Britain today. And then I had the head of news for West Country. And I just was like, oh my God, this is a, this is a tough battle. You know, this is tough. But I just thought, you know, it's, it's going to be okay. I'll be okay. You know, I'll be all right. So I did the interview I couldn't really read the rumours to see if they really kind of like liked me or not because the HR lady was very kind of, 
you know, couldn't read what she was thinking. Same thing with the um, the boss from West Country. I couldn't read what he was thinking. The only person that was smiling at me was the person from uh, Daybreak. So I was like, okay, if I can impress him, I think I'll be okay. And he was right in front of me in the middle. So anyway, I left being like, I've done what I can, we'll see what happens. And so I think about a week or two later, I got a call from the lady who's been liaising with me all this time about, you know, coming to the assessment centre and whatever. And at the time, I was outside of BBC Birmingham begging for yet another internship. <laughs> and I got the call. You know, when you get the call, like they do an X Factor, you get the call and then they tell you yes or no. And then she said to me, oh, yeah, you're in. Oh, my gosh. I went to my knees and cried like a baby because I knew at that time I was like, this is the break that I have been looking for. This is the this is the break that I have been looking for. I've been struggling for two years straight to get into this industry and I'm finally in here because I knew that if I do this traineeship and do it to the best of my ability there's no way that I would not be able to get a job even if it's not at ITV it'll be at BBC because I have lots of different skills now and now I have a big boy bad broadcaster on my CV I have a whole ITV news on my CV so I was crying like Honestly, you know, you remember how those people used to cry when they get the call on X Factor or Britain's Got Talent or whatever? I was crying like that. And so within a matter of, you know, days or weeks now, because they basically put you in regions outside of London, I had to now get my stuff together to be like, okay, where am I moving to? So they said to me that this year they only picked four people because normally they pick eight people. But this year they picked four and they were going to make us go to two different regions. And I was like, oh my gosh, four people. I was thinking, how many people applied? They said to us, like, just under a thousand people applied. I was like, wow, like, that's how I was like, you know what, this is God's. This is God's because there's no way that this would just be me by my strength. I was like, no, this is something that's been aligned by him for me to do this. And so they said to me that my first region would be in Yorkshire. So I had to move to Leeds for six months. And then the next six months would be Bristol which is where the, the guy that was on my panel um, from West Country, he's the one that deals with that area. So he basically said that I should come to him. So clearly I impressed him a little bit if <laughs> he chose me to come to his region. So, yeah, so that was it, really. I got into the ITV News traineeship. Wow. I mean, that shows remarkable kind of resilience, really. I mean, to get, you know, to apply once, to apply twice, to apply three times, most people will probably have, would have backed out after the first time or, you know, certainly the second time, but you tried another time. So that really does show how, how much you wanted it. I did, you know. Yeah. Because I guess in many different spaces, whether it's sports or the arts or whatever it is, corporate world, the difference between people that make it and, and don't make it or people that are successful and not is, is often desire, isn't it? 110%. I think... Nothing ever gets done in this world unless you really want it. Unless you really, really, really want it, nothing gets done in this world. And, you know, I watched an interview with Karen Brady recently um, with Stephen Bartlett where she was like, when she hears the word no, she doesn't see it as a no. She just sees it as a, how do I find another way to get a yes? And also you need to think about what is it that motivates you, that fire. She used the word fire. What is it that gets you going, you know? And I was like, yeah, because in my 20s, being in this industry and wanting to so desperately get into the industry, that is what used to get me up every single morning. I would go on my Gmail and I would make a folder called rejections. And every time I got rejection, I would just slam it in there and draw a line under it and not think about it because I could not allow it to affect my mental, as they say. You know, I didn't want it to affect my mindset um, in terms of trying to drag me down or me, or me be down about it. Because for me, there was no plan B. If it's not journalism, I don't know what I'm doing. Do I go back to waitressing? I don't know. Because I used to wait to, you know, while I was at journalism school. So I just, there was no plan B. And so for me, that was it. It was just a question of when rather than if, if, if that makes sense. But I could see my mum was getting worried, you know, and she's trying to push law onto me. That was one of the things that she used to do in uni. She was like, you know, maybe you should just go for law. And there was a time when I was chasing after law. And then I was like, I'm not doing this because I remember in Birmingham, you had like um, different visitors that would come. So a lot of the magic circle firms would come and talk and network and recruit and whatever. And yeah, I'd go to those talks and see what they were about or whatever. And then one day we had a high street law firm come and talk to us. And the guy's opening gambit was, if you think it's hard to get into corporate law, 
it's even harder for high street. So all the people who didn't get into corporate law are now trying to get into the high street. When he said that, I just looked at my friend and I was like, I'm not doing law. Why am I chasing after plan B when I could be chasing after plan A, which is to get into TV? And so you have to have that tenacity. There's no, there's no two ways about it. Like in TV, you're going to get so many rejections. Like that's just the name of the game. It's similar to entertainment. Like we're singers, you know, before you become a Rita Ora or whoever this world, you're going to go through so many rejections before you get to that stage. So yeah, there was a lot of tenacity and kind of blind faith and I had a blinkered vision. You know, I didn't see anything else apart from me getting into the industry in some way, you know? Yeah. I mean, you clearly have that desire and that resilience as we've just discussed. And even, even speaking to you now, I can tell how much you love your job. It sounds like you've got a real, real passion for it. But, you know, obviously moving away or moving around the country can be quite sort of... Um, destabilizing how did you find that period you know moving to Bristol moving to Yorkshire what impact did that have on your kind of social life your love life and your mental health I guess you know what so I saw it as an adventure I was like this is just going to boarding school over again except this time I have my own money and I get to choose where (laughs) I live (laughs) that's how I saw it so I was really excited if I'm really honest with you I was dead excited I was like yeah like I've never seen another city like Leeds before um and I was excited to go to Bristol as well because I had my cousin from Nigeria who was also coming to Bristol at the same time to do her MBA. So it was nice that I'd at least have a friend there. But, you know, once I moved to Leeds, I, I just, I don't know if it's because of the time of year I moved into, but I soon found that I really didn't like that city. Um, I just found it incredibly lonely, obviously. I didn't know a soul up there. Um, and also... I think Leeds, I don't know what it's like now, but at the time I just felt it was very much more of a student town in terms of people. I think if you're a student, you'd enjoy it so much. But as a young professional, I just did not enjoy it at all. And like I said, I barely knew anyone. So it was incredibly lonely because it's not like London where, you know, I mean, London can be lonely, don't get me wrong. But, you know, London is where I grew up. And so even if I wasn't my own, um, I would still find things to do and it's, you know, you'd still find your kind of community or whatever. Whereas Leeds was a smaller city, everything was smaller scale. And so it was hard for me to find a so-called tribe. And by the time I found my so-called, you know, group of friends, it was almost time for me to leave. So, um, yeah, it was tough, really. It was really tough in Leeds, actually. Really, really tough. Like, that really, being in Leeds actually really severely knocked my confidence, if I'm really honest with you. It really knocked my confidence compared to where I was coming into um, the industry, where I was on a high in terms of I was so happy to get in and all this kind of stuff. Um, But yeah, I just felt so, so lonely and so, and also because of the start of the traineeship, I was learning things new and I wasn't quite grasping certain things. You know, this is the first time in my life that really, I was really looking at failure in the face and, and realizing actually I'm not as, you know, can I swear on this podcast? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, I was gonna say my 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 shit doesn't stink as as well as it does. You know that kind of thing. <laughs> and so that was the first time I was realizing, like, wow. And it's funny because I read a lot of articles about about that when you know, as a child, if you're if you're someone that's done quite well as a child, sometimes you find young young adulthood quite difficult because you've never really experienced what it's like to not do well. If that makes sense. Whereas if you have that experience as a child. By the time you get to an adult, you feel a bit like, well, actually, I can overcome obstacles. Whereas this was the first real stumbling block I'd ever encountered, you know. So that was tough, actually. And I was really glad to leave Leeds. Even though, I, you know, there were certain members of my team that were really nice and quite supportive, I was very glad to leave Leeds as a city. So when I went to Bristol and, you know, this time it was spring, it was summer was coming and my cousin was around and I had found my groove now more in terms of, you know, what they wanted me to do within the traineeship and what I had to learn and how I could improve on it and stuff. I, I enjoyed Bristol so much more. And also because I had my cousin there as well, and it was her, her first time, not just in Bristol, but in the UK, you know, she was quite keen to find her Nigerian community. And so I used to follow her and that we would find a group of friends very quickly from me off. You know, that was the mistake that I made in Leeds. I didn't try and find a, a community, no, no matter what the community actually was, um, quickly. So I did that in Bristol. And yeah, I enjoyed Bristol so much. So I went where I almost didn't want to leave. But I got a job elsewhere, so I had to go. So how, how did you get from 
doing that traineeship, moving around the country to where you are now, where you are on probably, I'm guessing it's the biggest breakfast TV show in the country. So how did you get from that point to where you are now? Um, so after I left the traineeship, um, the idea is that, you know, hopefully you've done well on the traineeship and then therefore you'd get what they would call is like an entry level production journalist job, which is basically the people who write the bulletins for the presenters, you know, write parts of the script for certain parts of the new show and stuff um, on a very basic level. So I got a job in another ITV news region, but this time it was in um, Meridian, which is in Southampton way. That hasn't moved down to Southampton. I was there for, I had a six month contract, um, but I was there for four months because while I was doing that internship with Community Channel, I remember Jeremy Hunt was the culture secretary secretary then and he had announced that he was going to build licenses or open licenses for local television stations across the country. So I'd always say to myself, oh, if that London license ever comes up, I'm definitely going to apply for that TV, TV channel because, you know, even at a young age, I knew quite a lot of people. So my contacts book was quite large for someone who was quite young. And I knew that I could utilize that in some fashion if I could work within a London TV show. But at the same time, I knew that going to ITV London might still be a bit premature for me because it's just a different kettle of fish. So while I was at Southampton, I saw that they had been advertising for that London TV station. They had just set it up and just won a license, London Live. So I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to apply. But then part of me was like, oh, but that means leaving ITV. Do I really want to leave ITV for like a small broadcaster that I don't really know is even going to be successful? I have no idea. However, I do know more people and know more stories and just would be more useful in a newsroom that's in London than compared to Southampton that I don't know anyone. So I applied for the job anyway and just thought, oh, F it. Let me just see what happens. And then they gave me the job. Um, a planning assistant job, which is basically someone who just helps the planning editor to find stories. Um, And those stories are the ones that get fed to the different shows on the channel. And I thought, oh my gosh, so this is it now. I have to make the decision. Do I leave ITV or do I I, um, stay? And there was a correspondent at the Southampton newsroom at ITV that said to me, what you need to do is lay down the positives and the negatives for both and see which one you can live with. So I did that and I was like, yeah, I'm just going to go for it. And actually, when I told my boss at Southampton that I was leaving, he was like, he's really sad to see me go. However, he understands. And I said, why do you say that? I said, because the the chance to open up a new TV channel, especially when it's a news TV channel, only comes maybe like once or twice and at best three times in your career. So if he was me, he would do the same thing. You know, I'm young. I get to move back home. I get to see my mom and my friends. You feel more useful within the newsroom because it's a London newsroom. You know, he just he just got it. And I was like, yeah, that's the fact that you've given me your blessing, so to speak, because he was a very supportive boss, just allowed me to move in peace. So I went over to London Live, which is based in High Street, Kensington. It was owned by the Russian oligarch that owns the Evening Standard and the Independent. So, um, oh, it was such an exciting time. Oh, my gosh, Tunde. It was such an exciting time because... It was a brand new channel. The head of news there was so excited. She had all the fire in the world. She was so inspiring. We were so happy, so excited to launch this amazing new channel. You know, I'm not saying the budget was endless, but, you know, ideas were welcome. And, you know, when you're in a big kind of corporation like ITV or BBC, you know, it's only the kind of senior managers that have the kind of creative input, so to speak. And then you have everyone else that's below that kind of, actions that so to speak that's just the way organizations work no matter what industry you're in right but you know because this is a brand new small channel you know everyone's ideas were welcome and everyone could action it if you could physically do it if that makes sense and also we had such a huge remit in terms of the amount of content we had to make and so the more content we could make the more was welcome so we had so much freedom like when I look back now the amount of creative freedom we have we had was insane honestly it was crazy and so but at the same time it was so much fun and so we learned basically on the job and um I just learned so many things there I learned how to be creative how to do films in certain way how to film with different cameras how to edit on a different system how the newsroom just kind of worked in a smaller fashion um 
just to think outside of the box because the whole point was to do news but do it in a kind of out of the box way and also we were catering to like a younger audience as well so it was just different and it was a different vibe it was very chaotic but it was fun there was huge camaraderie you know it was just a crazy time Um, and it changed a lot while I was there but um, all in all it was a fantastic time of my career like it just set me up for so many things in terms of the level of creativity. But after a while, I moved from planning assistant up to production journalist. And then I moved up to, um, you know, being like a video journalist. And then I would present some of the live shows. So we used to do like a live show from Notting Hill Carnival. I saw that. I saw some of the footage on YouTube. Yeah. Yes. I ended up, you know, working my way up to that, which was, you know, again, such a crazy and, fantastic opportunity to just be yourself and be on camera and just be in the midst of a festival or an event that you really enjoy. It was great. Um, so after that, I felt as though I wanted to kind of go into more, um, a bigger broadcaster. So I decided to go freelance. And actually on the week that I decided to go freelance, just by chance, I had an email from the news editor at this morning at ITV where she just emailed me and was like, oh, by chance, are you freelance? And I was like, well, would you look at that? Literally last week, I quit my job. (laughs) So yes, I'll be freelancing within like two or three weeks. And so she started to give me shifts at this morning with Holly and Phil and stuff. So I worked on the news desk there for about on and off for about four and a half years. Um, And I did some shifts at GMB and some shifts at Lorraine, which are two other um, ITV daytime shows. Um, but in the midst of that, I also did like a year at City Hall when I worked at the comms desk. Um, that was for not the mayor, but the London Assembly. That was just a bit of a side thing. I just saw the opportunity and I thought, why not, you know, able to get some stable income for a year and a half or a year and a bit. And also learn the inner workings of um, City Hall and I would be able to use some of my contacts from London. And yeah, it just I just thought it was an interesting opportunity. So I did that for about a year and then I went back to freelance and then I got the job um, where I am now, which is at GMB, where I'm a features producer. So, yeah. That's amazing. I mean, I was actually listening to another podcast that you did. So I don't think it was you. I think it was maybe one of the other guests. She made a comment about things being harder for black women in TV, not necessarily, you know, TV news, but just in TV for, you know, presenters and uh, and the like. And I was just wondering what your thoughts is on that, because and he's been quite a few prominent black women over the years. I mean, obviously Charlene White, even going back to the likes of Moira Stewart, Trisha and June Sarpong, they're more presenters, I guess. Even now, you know, you've got like the likes of Alex Scott. So there, are, there have been some heavyweight women out there. And I was just wondering if you would agree with that comment, have things equaled up a bit, or do you think things are still more difficult for, for black women compared to black men? There's no doubt that things are very difficult for, you know, black women or black people in general. There's no doubt about that. I still experience that now. You know, there's no doubt about it. I think what people need to realise is just because you see a black face or a brown face on the TV, it doesn't necessarily equate to diversity off screen. Because, you know, one of the things that my boss from Southampton used to say to me was that at some point in your career, you're going to have to choose between the power which is being a producer, or the glamour, which is being on screen. So do you, what do you want, power or glamour, power or glamour? And, you know, well, I went for the power because I'm a producer, right? <laughs> but the idea is that if you have the power as a producer, you're the one that kind of dictates what's on screen. You're the one that dictates whether that presenter gets the job or that presenter doesn't get the job, if that makes sense. So, yes, you see presenters who are black and brown and, they, you know, they're getting more opportunity now. But there's a lot of work that still needs to be done in terms of the power side of things, because I think it's very, it's very easy to kind of put a stick in plaster and say, oh, look, well, we put a black presenter there now. You know, you should be happy. Well, no, because if you go into your newsroom, about 99 percent of the newsroom is white, <laughs> you know, and, and, and often when that happens, that one percent is probably like an Asian person. You wouldn't even get a black person there at all. So, and it's not to say that black people don't want to be in this industry. They clearly do. It's just finding the access to do it. Because like I said before, you know, one of the main reasons why I'm even in this industry right now is because of the fact that my mum helps me so much within those 20 months. Otherwise, I could have been like most people and just dropped out and said, I can't do this. It's too much. You know, I can't afford it or I just don't have the time or I need to go back to waitressing or whatever. But 
you know, you have to get people from different socioeconomic backgrounds and different ethnic backgrounds in order to diversify the newsroom. And it's not just putting a black presenter on TV. It has to be about making the decision because, you know, yes, some presenters make the decisions in terms of what they want, et cetera, et cetera, but most don't. The people who make the decisions and the things that you see on TV are decided by producers. The presenter just gets told, this is what you're doing, if that makes sense. So I think it's really important for the producing side that there needs to be more diversity there. Absolutely. And it's harder. But Yeah. So, yeah, that's made me think. So in your position as a producer, you're saying you've got lots of power and you can actually affect that change. Because I, I my next question to you is going to be, have you noticed a substantial change since George Floyd? Like, I think I have, just in terms of commercials, definitely being more black faces on on TV. But I was just wondering, on the news sides, have you seen a, a change there as well or not, not so much? There is a change. It's not necessarily significant, but there is a change. I think people are very much more aware now. Whereas before, it wasn't even a thought that came into some people's minds. Now there is a kind of an active you know, wanting to make sure that things are diverse now. You know, there's actual conversations happening. Like there's people who are more high alert in terms of, oh, we only have white men on the show today. Like let's try and, you know, be a bit more diverse. Or we only have this demographic on the show today. Let's try and be a bit more diverse, you know. And that's not to take away from white men, but that's also to say that, well, there are also black women or there are Asian women or Asian men or whatever who can do just as good a job. We, we don't have to keep going to the same old person. Does that make sense? Those conversations happen a lot more now and, and people are a lot more conscious from top to bottom, you know, not just us on producer level, but also way up, you know, on the editor level. They also are having discussions about that. If anything, it's the editors who are pushing it more than anything, being like, you know, make sure that you're getting diverse panellists and diverse people to come on the show and talk, et cetera, et cetera. So... Yes, definitely since George Floyd, I've seen a, a major kind of shift in the dialogue that happens in newsrooms now. Whereas before, it, it wouldn't even be, you know, it wasn't ever, I wouldn't say it was intentional, but it was just kind of, it just didn't even come to mind, you know. Yeah, that's really good to to hear. So there, there, there is change, positive change taking place in news as well as other areas. So that's, that's really good. So, I mean, what what's next for you, uh, for me? I mean, you know, I, I thought maybe having your own chat show maybe or becoming <laughs> News at 10 anchor. But it, it seems like you're moving towards, you know, the producer side of things. So, you know, what what's next on your horizon over the next five or 10 years? You know what? I won't say too much, but <laughs> I definitely think that the future is digital. I mean, we know this already. Um, you know, it pains me to say this, but television or live linear television, I should say, the kind of television that you sit down and watch something at 7.30, you know, that that is dying a very slow death. And the industry is, you know, knows it, is partly in denial about it. Um, and I think people, a lot of people are jumping before they get pushed, et cetera, et cetera, like similarly with newspapers. But I definitely think the future is digital in some formats. Um, I don't think news will ever die because I think as much as we live in a kind of an information age era where anyone can be a journalist by tweeting something, I think people still want quality information. I think there will always be um, an appetite for that. If anything, the appetite for that might even increase because of the the, the kind of sheer volume of disinformation. So um, I just think whether that happens in a kind of linear live television format remains to be seen in the next five to ten years um what does that mean for you how are you going to get involved in that that move to digital oh what does that mean for me (laughs) (laughs) we'll have to wait and see but um my eyes are my eyes are peeled let's just put it that way my eyes are peeled for you know what will happen and not just in terms of you know necessarily moving even to another broadcaster because even ITV themselves ITV have just launched an amazing service ITVX it's a it's a brand new you know streaming service they're taking that very seriously because yeah. they know just as I said that they invested they did, a lot of money yeah they invested a lot of money they know that the future is digital so you know there's opportunity opportunities on there in terms of news and making content etc so it's not even a thing where I'm even saying that I'm going to leave ITV it's just a thing where I'm like you know, I just don't know how long linear television is going to last for. Um, but I very much am mindful of the fact that, you know, digital is 
not only coming, but it's here, you know? So, um, cause I'm, I'm in love with the video format. I love video. I love film. I love pictures. I love telling stories through pictures. It's what's always interested me, especially during the days of London Live. I just love telling the story by putting things visually together. And so, you know, whatever format that comes in or whatever platform that comes in, whether it's TV or, you know, a website or social media platform, whatever, um, doesn't um, make me fuss, really, um, just as long as I can do it or at least be a part of it. So as we draw to a close, I just wanted to ask you, you know, you've had a lot of success over the years. Um, it's been really interesting finding out about your journey. How much of your success do you think has been down to talent? How much is down to hard work? And then how much is down to, to luck? Ooh, that's such a good question. I want to say maybe 60% is hard work. I'd say 60% is hard work because that even having the tenacity to keep going, even when doors are being slammed in your face, that in itself is a level of hard work. So I'd say 60% is hard work. Maybe like 30% is talent. And I want to say maybe 10% is luck. But let me tell you, all of that underpinning that, all of that is underpinned by, in my belief, which is in God's. Because I can see throughout my career and just even throughout my life from when I was born till now, there are certain kind of guiding steps or, you know, just kind of things that were blocked from my path or or times when I was pushed in a certain direction, I wasn't really expecting it, that I just know it was his hand backing me. I can't even explain it. I know that sounds crazy if you're, especially if you're not someone of faith, but you know, there's just certain things that I know were not down to the hard work, the luck or the talent. I just know it was like a guiding hand. So underpinning those three categories that you've just said, all of that is backed by, by God for me. I couldn't even be in this industry without him. It's not possible. I don't think I would even be here. To know. So just one last kind of more, a bit more gossipy type question. I mean, as we said, right at the beginning, you've interviewed probably hundreds, if not thousands of people over the years. Who's been the most interesting, do you think? Oh, gosh. Who's been the most interesting? Okay, I know one that I just did. I, I wouldn't say she's the most interesting, but she, this is one that's recent that I can remember. So actually, no, there's two. So there's an, there was an elderly lady that I interviewed last year who was around for the Queen's coronation. She's like 97 and she's fit as a fiddle. And she was telling me all these stories about the coronation and what she did and what she wore and what BE day was like and this and that. I'm like, what? That stuff is like in history, boys. You're telling me you were there and you saw it? So that was one. Then there was another guy that I interviewed while I was at London Live where he was the assistant to, I think the guy's name is Alan Fleming. Correct me if I'm wrong. But anyway, the guy that, that introduced, uh, so not, and, and not the coder, sorry, the guy that discovered antibiotics, you know, whoever le- um, listens to this podcast, they can correct me and remind me. But the guy that made antibiotics, I interviewed one of his assistants, this really old guy. Again, he was like 99 or something. And he was just telling me stories about then and his medical career and how smart he was. And I was like, wow, like you were there when antibiotics was made. Like literally your work with this guy saves how many lives? This is crazy, you know? So just people like that who have made like such a huge, either a huge contribution to the world or just remember things from yesteryear that literally no one is around to even remember anymore. Those kind of people really inspire me. Because this lady that I interviewed last year, who's 97, she was like all the people who were there with her that day at the coronation or, or on VE day, for example, when the war ended, they're all gone now. She's the only one left. Yeah. So I was like, wow, that is, that's quite deep. And so the fact that I had the privilege to kind of record her and she's telling me these stories, we have her on film for like forever now to go back and watch. It's an honour and it's a privilege, you know, and that's one of the things I love about journalism, but it's one of the things I love about television journalism. Yeah, I'm so I'm so glad you didn't mention any celebrities because I know you've you've interviewed quite a few over the years. Yeah, I've interviewed some. I mean, they're all right. <laughs> they're all right. I don't get me wrong. I love entertainment and I love meeting them because it's always nice to meet someone that is you know famous and stuff. But um, 
Yeah, it's those people who you should know but don't know. Those are the people that really kind of, you know, excite me. So where where can people find you online for me? So you can find me on Twitter, which is just at Fumi Olutoye. That's my first name and my my surname. Or on Instagram, which is at Fumi O, letter O. Same thing with um, TikTok is at Fumi O. Um, Yeah, those are the main three places, really. Great. Well, as I said, it's been a really a fantastic hour or so just finding out about your journey, the, the obstacles, the challenges, moving up and down the country to where you are now, where you're crushing it on uh, on MTV, on MTV, ITV, ITV. <laughs> um, so thank you so much for coming on the show and all, all the best with your career. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much to Fumi for coming in and being such a great guest and documenting her journey into getting to become a mover and shaker on ITV. How amazing is that? That's it for this week of How I Crushed It. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, you know what to do. Please tell your friends. You can follow us as always on social media at How I Crushed It on Twitter and Instagram. And I will see you on the next show.